You've probably seen a 5-year dividend yield theory chart, and perhaps a 7- or 10-year one as well, but have you ever seen a 28-year dividend yield theory chart? I have, because I recently created one, mainly out of curiosity, but then I started digging more into it, and trying to see if I can gain some insights that I could use to benefit me as a dividend investor. So today I'm going to share with you what I learned from the 28-year dividend yield theory chart that I put together. Before I begin this analysis, I wanted to select a proper dividend stock to analyze. It had to have a long and prosperous history of dividend growth, and I wanted to choose a company with a pretty good track record as well. I narrowed my shortlist to a few quality dividend names, but ultimately decided to go with Johnson & Johnson. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here's what the 28-year dividend yield theory chart looks like. And right off the bat, we can see a few clear patterns the stock price is taking during the past nearly three decades. The first pattern is a period of strong and consistent growth in the late 90s. This was followed by a sharp decline in 2000 during the dot-com bubble. By 2001, the stock had recovered and reached a new all-time high. In 2002, there was another sharp decline. This time, it took nearly three years to reach a new high by early 2005. Between 2005 and 2012, there was not much growth in the share price. The stock also dipped quite sharply during the 2007 and 2008 financial crisis. 2013 and 2014 were a period of strong growth, followed by a small pullback in 2015. Then we had another period of growth that started in 2016 and lasted through 2017. There was some volatility during these two years, but the stock generally traded for a premium to its fair value as measured by dividend yield theory. In 2018, there was yet another sharp dip, followed by a recovery and one more dip towards the end of the year. In 2020, the stock fell sharply during the pandemic crash, but it also bounced back very quickly. And the last two years have been rather volatile, but the price has generally moved higher. Looking at historical valuations to prove a point can be considered cheating to some extent, because we clearly already know what happened after each dip and peak. I personally believe that dividend yield theory would have been an effective valuation tool, and one that could have improved your long-term return with Johnson & Johnson. I'll prove this to you through simple math later on. But first, let's talk about the pitfalls of dividend yield theory and why you have to be careful with any valuation technique. The first pitfall is that there were instances during the last 28 years where dividend yield theory suggested Johnson & Johnson was overvalued, yet the stock continued to deliver strong returns for multiple years after. For instance, the stock climbed into the overvalued zone in early to mid-1995. If you, as an investor, used this valuation measure as an indicator to invest or not, you would have missed out on all of the gains from the late 90s. It wasn't until the dot-com bubble in 2000 that Johnson & Johnson appeared undervalued again. But even at its lowest point in 2000, the stock price was significantly higher than the price it traded for between 1995 and 1998, leaving investors with a missed opportunity. That's strike one for dividend yield theory. Strike two is that this valuation technique suggested the stock was undervalued during the entire period of about mid-2003 through 2012. And while the price did oscillate between $50 and $70 during these years, providing opportunities for some capital appreciation, in hindsight, this could be called a dead period for the stock. The biggest lesson from these two pitfalls is that while dividend yield theory can be effective at suggesting whether a given stock is undervalued or overvalued, it is not a good indicator of where the stock will move in the future. And in all honesty, that is not something we should be asking for from a valuation measure. All valuation measures should be considered along with a deeper view of a company's financials and growth prospects 
to come up with a holistic view of whether or not you believe a given stock is a good or bad investment. Let's take a look at the actual and trailing dividend yield for Johnson & Johnson to see what insights it can offer that aren't as evident in the dividend yield theory chart itself. We can see that the actual dividend yield for Johnson & Johnson during the last 28 years had a pretty wide range. It dipped to a low of just above 1% and peaked at a high just above 4%. The trailing dividend yield also moved quite a bit, starting just above 2% in 1995, dipping to about 1.4% in the early 2000s, and climbing to a high of nearly 3.5% by 2014, followed by another dip to about 2.66%, where it stands today. What we can tell from this chart is that in the late 90s the stock was less appealing to dividend investors because the dividend yield kept getting smaller. Even though Johnson & Johnson was increasing its dividend rate every year at a rather healthy pace in the low to mid-teens, the share price moved higher at a faster pace in turn driving the dividend yield lower. Between 2003 and 2012, while the share price oscillated in that flat range between $50 and $70, the dividend yield improved drastically, driven by consistent dividend growth. This in turn made the stock more appealing to a dividend investor. Another factor in play here was dividend reinvestment. In the late 90s, reinvested dividends played a much smaller role on total returns and generating more dividend income, because all of the dividends that Johnson & Johnson paid out during this period of time were reinvested at very low initial yields. Whereas between 2003 and 2012, the dividend snowball was continuously picking up steam, as generally most dividends were reinvested at more attractive yields and generated more dividend income going forward. The big question remains whether or not dividend yield theory was a useful indicator of more opportune times to invest in Johnson & Johnson, and would using it have led to better overall returns. I crunched the math and I'll let the numbers speak for themselves. I measured the annualized return of investing in Johnson & Johnson during every trading day between January of 1995 and January of 2022, which was roughly 6,800 days. Here are the results. The worst day to invest in the stock resulted in a 1.23% annualized return. The best day yielded a return of 19.99%, with the average being 8.72%. Now, if you use dividend yield theory to determine whether or not you were going to invest on any given trading day, the returns were a bit different. I placed the cutoff for whether or not to invest right at the fair value line, meaning if the stock was even slightly undervalued, I would invest, and if it was even slightly overvalued, I would not. The worst day to invest in the stock when it was undervalued resulted in a 6.55% annualized return. The best day yielded a return of 19.99%, with the average being 9.17%. The worst day to invest if the stock was overvalued led to a 1.23% annualized return. The best day yielded a return of 13.44%, with the average being 8.29%. So on average, you would have been better off investing on all days when dividend yield theory suggested the stock was undervalued. This would have given you an extra 45 annualized basis points versus simply investing every day and an extra 88 annualized basis points compared to all days when the stock looked overvalued. But I think the bigger benefit here was the difference between the average return on the worst day. Dividend yield theory significantly lowered your odds of having a poor long-term return, because the difference between a 6.55% return and a 1.23% return is pretty drastic, especially over a long period of time. I also tested using a 5 and 10% undervalued threshold as the cutoff to invest, but this did not improve the average return. Using the 5% cutoff lowered the average annualized return from 9.17% to 9.07%. It did, however, improve the worst possible return from 6.55% to 6.8%. The 10% cutoff yielded similar results, further lowering the average return to 8.97% and barely improving the worst return to 6.81%. So while dividend yield theory did not lead to significant alpha in the average return, it did drastically improve the downside risk, which I think is very interesting. And in all honesty, 45 basis points of alpha is nothing to sneeze at in my book either. 
Of course, these results are specific to Johnson & Johnson and to this exact time period. I did wonder if perhaps the flat period between 2003 and 2012, where the stock was undervalued, had a disproportionate effect on the long-term average returns. Because as we now know, following 2012, Johnson & Johnson had a period of pretty good returns. So perhaps investing on all of those trading days between 2003 and 2012 led to better than average long-term annualized returns. But this wasn't the case. When I eliminated the results for 2003 through 2012 from the final analysis, the average return of investing in the stock when it was undervalued improved from 9.17% to 9.3%. I think I will have to run the same analysis on a few more dividend stocks to see if a similar pattern occurs. There you have it, a 28-year dividend yield theory chart and some interesting findings. Dividend yield theory suggests that Johnson & Johnson stock is undervalued now, or at least it was on January 25th when I updated the results. The stock is part of my portfolio, and I will highly likely hold it for a long time.